Hello and welcome to Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest, Patty Miller, is an award-winning memorist and nonfiction writer whose 2012 book, The Mind of a Thief, was longlisted for the Stella Prize and the Nita Kibble Prize, shortlisted for the Western Australia Premier's Prize for Nonfiction, winner of the New South Wales Premier's Prize for History, and on the syllabus for English for the VCE in Victoria. Her most recent memoir, Ransacking Paris, was released in April 2015 to critical acclaim. Her two previous writing books, Writing Your Life and the Memoir Book, have been continually in print since publication. Patty is a highly successful life writing teacher and mentor here to talk about her latest book, Writing True Stories. Patty Miller, welcome. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Now, before we begin chatting, can I ask you please to just read us a little bit from Writing True Stories, maybe five five minutes or so, anywhere? Yes, okay. Well, I thought um, maybe I'd start at the beginning because that kind of introduces the territory and it's uh, the opening chapter is called Exploring the Territory. What is it like for anyone to be in the world? This is the vast and private knowledge that each one of us has and the great mystery. No one else can really know what it's like for you to be here on this planet. Others could conceivably find out everything that has happened to you, your entire history, but they still could not know how you experience being here. For me, this is the starting point for writing true stories, a desire to express how one experiences life, its shape, its texture, its atmosphere, and a consuming curiosity to know how other people experience it. Whether you want to write autobiography, memoir, travel narratives, personal essays, creative non-fiction, biography, or even edge towards the borderlands of fiction, this book will help you write true stories. You've experienced being here in the world, have known the joys and perhaps heartaches of life, faced challenges, had adventures, fulfilled dreams, witnessed change, made observations. Whatever your achievements or trials, your stories are worth writing. You may have worked as a farmer or a scientist, a prime minister or an office administrator, high school teacher or computer game designer. You may be famous, unemployed, disabled, wealthy. In every case, you have lived your own unique life. Experience of living and a desire to write are the starting point of writing your stories. It doesn't matter how old you are or whether you've done anything others consider extraordinary or not. Writing is first of all observation and then putting the observation into words. For good life writing, the quality of your observation is key. It's how you see your life that matters rather than what you've done. Truthfully observing your life and the world around you is the starting point of all writing. The essential truth is always, what is it like to be in the world? To me, that's one of the most interesting questions of all. What childhood dream, or perhaps dread, led you to this point in your life? What roads travelled or less travelled have you taken? What do you believe about yourself? Do you have a compass? And if so, what's it made of? Still, the desire to express experience in writing is by itself not enough. Life is made of days, but writing is made of words. Can one level of reality be transmuted into the other? Postmodern thought argues that words can never represent life. They can only represent a parallel world of words, a world of signs. 
Words are not a window through which we can see reality. They're more like permanent contact lenses that construct the world we see according to the colour and thickness of the lens. More than that, the lens also shapes our inner world. Feelings themselves are to some extent shaped by words. It's almost impossible to imagine how we could experience the world without language because we use words to imagine too. Still, acknowledging our lens, accepting that words will always form our experience, we can try to set down what we see through them and how. Mm. I I love this idea that... I guess we all know, but that you put very beautifully in the book of this vast and private knowledge. There's a little magic there, isn't there? I, I, I think so. I mean, in, in, in the translating of it into words, there's certainly a, a, certainly a magic. But, but to me, it's about, um, I guess, a kind of communion between people that happens with memoir. Because I think when somebody really expresses that, that vast and private world on, on the page... The people who are reading it, even though it is a private world, the people reading to it connect to it at a very deep level because I think in, in many ways we all share that vast and private world and, and having access to that in each other through through memoir or, or um, uh, creative non-fiction writing, to me it's a great privilege but it's also, it's also very powerful. It, it creates such a deep communion between people. Mm, yes, almost like a, a firing of neurons in the brain. That's a, it's like a, a network that connects us. And I think all of us yeah. as readers have had that moment when we've read somebody's memoir and thought, you know, that that's me. I, I feel this. Yeah. You know, this is part of who I yes, am as yes. well. Yes, I find that happening all the time too in, in writing classes. There's a really deep sense of communion that actually happens in writing classes, which which people find very moving and very powerful. And it's all to do with that connection, you know, that we are kind of, we are essentially, despite, you know, all our various evils, we are essentially empathetic creatures. And so we do kind of vibrate in unison with, with other people when we hear their story. And, and that connects us to them in a deep, in a deep way. And, and that's, that's probably the central thing that, that, um, holds me in, in, in memoir writing and good non-fiction writing as well. Mm. So you've been doing life writing workshops for, you know, for 25 years, a quarter of a century. Uh, how did you yeah. become the memoir whisperer? <laughs> how did I? Become the memoir, whis- the memoir whisperer. I think that was Jessica. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a funny expression, yes. Um, I think it's, it's it, I mean, it started uh, because I was already teaching, I was writing and, and teaching writing at, at university. And I noticed that a number of people were wanting to write stories from their own lives in, in, in the um, writing classes. And also that I was writing from my own life. And I thought, you know, maybe I could design a class that, that was especially for people who wanted to write um, from their own life. And so I, I designed a class and I went to the Varuna Writers' Centre, which is at one of the National Writers' Centres um, in, in Australia. And I, they took it straight away and it, it, it was instantly um, very popular. So I, I, I kind of realised that, that, that um, many people wanted to express the stories of their life. So it really grew from there and, and my writing became more and more involved in the area of nonfiction as well. I mean, I had written novels, uh, I've written uh, one published novel and, and many short stories, but I have found that my writing has 
has become you know more and more non-fiction writing more and more um somewhere between memoir and non-fiction because it's always you know aspects of my own life but but also a, a broader territory and 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 I became you know more and more passionate about it and I realized that most of my reading now is also non-fiction so I, I think you know it's, it's that um, you know, uh, I discovered a passion in myself and discovered, you know, memoir writers down through history as well. You know, um, one of my favourites is actually a 16th century memoirist, uh, Michel de Montaigne. So it's, it's, it's something, it's not, it's not necessarily a contemporary phenomenon, but it has become very popular, I think, um, in the last um, 30 or 40 years. But for me, it's, it's, it's kind of discovering that clear, strong, voice that memoir that memoir has that kind of communication that we were talking about before that makes it so valuable yes i mean do you, do you feel over the past 25 years and i mean obviously montaigne was writing a long time ago and and uh, the desire to write and read memoirs has always been strong i think um but do you feel that it's increased uh, the 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 popularity perhaps the the dispersion the the sense that everybody has a story I, I think I think it has. I, I did ask a publisher about this a few weeks ago. Um, this is uh, Sophie Hamley at, at Hachette, um, which is you know a multi a multinational publishing house, and and she said you know that that really in terms of uh, literary um, fiction, comparing say literary fiction to to memoir, then then memoir sold more. But if you looked at popular fiction, then then popular fiction and popular memoir, if you like. Um, were perhaps even, and that's certainly a change. You know, I think um, memoir before, say before the seventies, um, before that, memoir was really only that uh, written by famous people. You know, people who were already well known in some field. You know, um, a movie star or an actor or a sports person or a writer. But it's actually being sort of claimed back from that kind of elite sort of territory and, and that it's actually now, um, it's now the property of the people. So I think it's a much more democratic form now than it used to be. Do you feel also, and I've noticed this certainly in, in my reading, um, maybe just by chance, but it seems to me that the the blurring of genre is something that also seems to be happening more and more. And, and you handle that very well in your book with notions of creative nonfiction. And, you know, I, I've noticed, for example, many poets um, are writing poetic memoirs and, and uh, you know, many essayists are bringing in these elements of memoir um, to their to their writing. Yes, and I, and I like I like that a lot. You know, I I enjoy that um, process, and I I think that uh, readers and I, and I count myself amongst them still um, would like to know if they if something is being presented as memoir, they'd like to have some idea of. Um, what really happened and what might be imagined, uh, but I think you know that we can be fairly uh, kind of broad about that. To me, it's 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 the uh, a kind of relationship that that um, between a reader and writer is the same as the relationship between friends, where you don't mind if they embroider or exaggerate or go sideways or you know quote a bit of poetry or whatever, but you don't like it if they take your emotions for a ride. So I think, you know, to me, that essential thing of the um, kind of emotional kind of authenticity 
of, of memoir is, is important. But I really enjoy the, um, the kind of hybrid nature of, of memoir and that it can be, um, you know, like uh, one of mine, part history, you know, or it can be part an exploration of French memoirists. <laughs> or it can be, you know, part um, uh, an exploration of of um, a connection between two people. Um, I've just I've just been reading Peter Bishop's um, The Many Ways of Seeing, which is actually written with uh, um, a blind man, um, uh, Nick Gleason. So the two of them are writing it together, and I think that's a really interesting and original kind of blurring of the boundaries because we tend to think of memoir as the one thing that's written by one person. But, um, you know, they have kind of extended the area where it's, it's two people writing together. So, so I think it's, it's a really very flexible, uh, it's very flexible genre. And I enjoy that, too. Yes. Yes. And you do make in, in the book, you make a very valid point, too, about, you know, readers, you kind of strike a little bargain and you say, you know, I can I can do all sorts of things. What you can't do is pretend you were somebody you definitely weren't um, or pretend that you had an experience that you most certainly and obviously did not. Yes, unless you signal it. I think, you know, you can do that. You can signal it in some way that the reader will get. I mean, it doesn't have to be that obvious. Um, you know, in uh, one of my my earliest um, memoir non-fiction, um, the last one remembers, I signaled it with, um, you know, the title of a, of a piece with a question mark after it. And, and that, you know, let the reader know that this was imagined. So I think you can you can invent in in memoir, but for me at least I need I need some signalling. You know, even if it's just a raised eyebrow, <laughs> I need to know how to take it. As I do in a friendship, I need to know how to take what somebody's telling me. Yes, and I think with you know with a fair amount of of candor, it's possible to bring in other elements. So I, I mean, I think for example of Fiona Wright's small acts of disappearance, you simply bring in. You can bring in literature. <laughs> you can say, you know, now yes. I'm going to write about books, and here, yes, here's yes, how yes. that relates to the memoir. But these these are different people's stories. That's right. Yes, and and, and someone like uh, Ramona Caval um, mm. shaped her whole memoir around books. You know, around around her passion for books. So so yeah, it, it, you can do anything with it. That's one of the things that I I love about it. You know, that it is endlessly. Um, flexible, um, endlessly malleable. You know, any any particular passion or area, you you can flood and flow into that and and back again. And and you know, as you suggest, you know, use use bits of of, of poetry or or you know, uh, interviews, you know, with with other people or research. You know, it, it and it all depends, I think, on on the voice and on you being able to hold together with the voice. Mm. Yes. That's right. I mean, one of the things you say, which I think is, is really powerful and, and is really, um, it's going to be working itself around my head, is this notion yeah. of, of how we're all effectively creating the narrative of our lives. That, you know, that this is a natural and inherent process that life is not, in fact, <laughs> does not experienced as a story or a narrative, but simply that we create these, sift and arrange the events that happen every day into this yeah. kind of narrative. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Sorry, I, I think you can maybe hear a noise in the background. Um, but, uh, yes, I, I think that, to me, you know, we are all constructing ourselves every day, in fact. You know, and, and we are selecting the various elements of our past um, that we want to focus on or that we want to in, 
uh, tell other people about. We don't do it so much consciously, but we're doing it all the time. We're constructing a, a kind of self. And I think when your project is um, memoir, then you become very aware of that, very aware of how much you are constructing a self. And, and especially, you know, when I first started writing and looking at um, the things that had formed me, um, particularly the literature had, that had formed me, I realized that I had constructed myself very much from the books that I had read, you know, but also from the place that I grew up, you know, the landscape that I grew up in. So it was me um, sort of sifting through all the various things in, in my life and seizing on some that that I um, focused on as part of my identity. It's not a conscious process. I think everyone does it all the time. And for some, you know, they can attach their um, identity to their uh, sort of ethnic background, perhaps, or to um, who, where they came from, or to the status of their family, or to some physical uh, fact such as a disability or perhaps a gender identification. And, I mean, there's endless, each one of us, there's endless other ways we could identify ourselves, but there's particular aspects that we, we select. And it's, it's not that it just happens in writing. You just become more conscious of it when you write about it, I think. Well, then there's that observation aspect that you talked about in, in the introduction you just read, um, this notion of the writer being somebody who who sort of stops and observes and, and, and you know, takes time to, to reconstruct or construct effectively. That's right, and puts it, and puts it out there as well. Mm. I think I, I like that quote of um, Emile Zola, you know, the French writer. I mean, he was a novelist, but um, there's a quote um, that I, I like of his where he says, um, people ask um, what an artist is. Um, I will tell you, an artist is somebody who lives out loud. And I thought, yes, that's right. I mean, it's not that an artist is any different. The same sorts of things are happening inside a writer as inside everybody else. There's, there's nothing special about a writer. It's just that a writer puts it out there, lives out loud. And that's the kind of brave and scary thing, really, you know, is, is, is to put it out there. Um, but the thing that happens is is that people, can, that's what people connect to. They recognise that. I think, yes, that's, that's inside me as well. So... That's where the sort of uh, the power comes from, I think, is, is putting it out there. Yes, and I suppose putting it out there kind of depersonalizes it or universalizes it in, in a way. I mean, I, you know, this notion of taking the poison out of, you know, if it's dark, if it's un, undiscussed, um, sometimes the past can be quite poisonous. But once you begin to play with it a little bit, um, maybe perhaps there's a therapeutic element as well, that it, it becomes a broader story. Yes, I, I have noticed that. I mean, my approach to to uh, writing in in the workshops that I do and and in the book is is always from the art and craft of it. Mm. You know, I never try to present or push it as as something which is um, healing um, because I'm I don't have any training in that field. You know, I'm not a therapist or psychologist or anything like that. Mm. But I still have observed, and it has been said to me many times by students that they do find it healing. So there is something, I think, as you say, in putting it out there and, and putting it into the light and, and, and it loses some of its power in the light. It's like a kind of a, a Dracula inside you or something like that, you know, that it actually loses some of its power in the light to, to control you. It's only when it's sort of repressed all the time um, and hidden all the time 
that that has that kind of power to control you. But also I think it is empowering because you can write the story and um, emphasize the elements that you want. And, And so you become, in a sense, you do become literally the author of your own life. So I think it's 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 um you know and, and it's something you can obviously be very dishonest about as well. You know, you construct you can construct yourself on the page which is which is not authentic. But I do think readers can pick that mm. if you do that. You know, there is to me there is a kind of um, you know, a ring, if you like, of truth. And I don't mean that, you know, that ring of truth where 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 something um, you know, which is fixed. I just mean, you know, that you are being authentic to your own truth. Yes, and and look, vulnerability and the flawed the flawed narrator is is attractive in any case to a reader. I think we don't want to read about people who are perfect. I know, and and, and I, I think that and, and being um, um, certain about everything, I think, is very irritating mm. as well. I mean, I suppose we all know somebody who's very certain about things. And um, I think it can be alienating. And I, I like again what Montaigne said about that. Um, he said quite quite ruthlessly, in fact, um, that only fools are certain. <laughs> and, uh, and when I first read that, I was like, oh, okay, because we're kind of taught that it's good, uh, you know, to be certain about things and not to be doubtful or wishy-washy. It can be called. But then I, when I thought about it, I realised that that most of the worst evil in the world actually comes from people who are very certain that they're right. Yes. Because you can't go around kind of killing people um, unless you're sure that you're right. So I, I, I thought, yeah, he's, you know, that that um, that kind of certainty is actually a very dangerous thing. That uncertainty um, is a good thing. Yes, you know, so it, it kind of turned around my my perspective. Yes, leaves us open. And in fact, the way you write the book. Um, is non-prescriptive. I think you don't you don't say these are the methods you you must follow, but you you simply provide uh, you know a gazillion exercises, and you encourage yes, the reader to yes. explore and and try many different things to find something that resonates. Yes, for me, it's a process of, of just kicking open a few doors, really, mm. and letting people see what might be in there. Because because when you're starting out with something, you don't even know where the doors are. You know, you, you feel like you're kind of wandering around this kind of vast um, kind of building and you, there's no way in. So to me, the process is, is really like this, this building has many rooms in it and um, I will um, you know, open a few doors and you can have a look in and see, see what you like, you know, and take what you need, take what you want. Because, I mean, it would be a terrible situation if, if everybody... Um, you know, started following the same particular um, approach, you know, or the same particular line in in their writing. I mean, that would destroy the whole point of it to me. It's about, you know, discovering um, your own pathway through, but you've just got to know, you know, where the general territory is and, and where the ways in might be, and then you can try them for yourself. Yes. Uh, there, you know, you cover a tremendous amount of ground in the book as well. I'm sure you could have added more <laughs> or taken some oh. away. How, how did you decide? Yes, they what... only, only allowed me a certain number of words. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you decide what to include and what to leave out? Did you did you base the book on some of the workshops that you've done? Oh, yes. They, they are based on, on the workshops and, you know, the, the earlier writing books as well. But the more, you know, the more work, uh, workshops I've done, and as you say, I've been doing them for, a bit over 25 years, I, I know, you know, really 
what works and, and what's useful from what I've learned from students, you know, that this, this is a, uh, and also the kind of shape of what they need to learn. So it's kind of organized in a hopefully progressive kind of way so that people who are just starting out can start near the beginning and, and people who are more experienced can sort of dive in later on. But I, I just wanted to include more and more, you know, really, you know, more, I would have liked, you know, having more chapters on, on, um, creative nonfiction, for example, but um, you know the word length from the publisher at first was seventy thousand words, and I said there's no way I couldn't possibly fit it in um, to that. Um, so we ended up around um, eighty five thousand words. So there's those sort of practical considerations about how long can you can you make up um, you know a writing book, and also it's probably not useful for it to be a very large book. Because for me, the test of a good writing book is that you put it down and you start writing. Mm. You know, I think people say, oh, you know, they read the whole book, you know, and I think, oh, well, actually, I'd much prefer that you put the book down <laughs> and started writing yourself, um, you know, rather than just have, the, you know, the comforting pleasure of, you know, of reading the book and, and thinking, oh, well, that, that was nice or, or whatever. But to be excited, at a certain point, whatever page, halfway through a page, put the book down, start writing, then it's done its job. Yes, and I suppose you can dip back in again and again whenever it's necessary. Um, have you been surprised through through the workshops, through the books, at you know what what those exercises have given rise to in terms of you know output from your students? Ah, absolutely. I mean, it's it stunned me that some particular exercises always work beautifully, and and it stuns the the people in in the writing classes as well because they didn't realise they could do it. You know, so so that's that's especially the ones that are about going into memory, particular um, childhood memory via, say, the map of house exercise, where you draw um, um, a floor plan of the house. It could be childhood, it doesn't have to be. I just find it interesting and useful to start with those with childhood because of the way that memory is stored so very clearly and vividly in childhood. But you don't have easy access to it most of the time. Uh, you know, usually if you ask someone to, you know, tell about their childhood, they'll say, well, it was lovely or it was horrible. Um, and they don't give any, there's no specifics. But with this drawing, you know, it, it actually activates the neural pathways in a different way when you're drawing. And and really clear, vivid memories come back to people when they do that. And they're often startled. I've, I've heard people say, my God, I haven't thought of that for 50 years. <laughs> it's quite, it, it can be quite extraordinary, you know, how, how that works. And, and it's to do with like, focusing the brain on, on something concrete. You know, it's, it's the same with the, you know, activating the various senses, like listening to a particular uh, piece of music from the, from the place you want to recall or the era you want to recall. Or, or eating a mad line. <laughs> What's that? Eating a mad line. What you say, the Proustian yes, memory. Yes, 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 having your own madelines, yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I suppose a lot of really early memories, and, and I guess it's kind of exciting really how much is in there as well when you think it's gone, but some of those early memories are perhaps even pre-linguistic or at least have a large non-linguistic component to them, the smell of something or the, you know, the perception or the feel of something against your skin. 
That's right. And, and it turns out, you know, and this is something I've observed, but it's also of, of you know, scientific research that's been done on that, that every memory that we have actually has a sense component. It's the way they're laid down. Um, so even however emotional uh, or psychological the memory is, it actually does have a sense component. And that means um, that we can all um, use that as the key to memory, that, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, each one of us would have, you know, a range of Madeleine cakes that we can dip in our cups of tea and and find those connections. And then even even if we if we can't actually go out and you know and smell that particular red rose that was inside our grandmother's garden gate, even just writing it down, the memory, writing the memory down will bring back the associations and it will connect it will start connecting to other memories because the other way that the, the other aspect of memory is its structure. It's not it's not ordered in a logical, rational way, like everything that happened in 1972, or everything that happened in that house in Burke Street. Um, but it's not stuffed in like a rag bag either. It's actually deeply patterned by association, by symbol, by image, by metaphor. In fact, the same way that poetry is structured, which means you know everybody's everybody's memory is a poet. And so if we dive in, we're going to find those connections and patterns if we trust them so that a deep organic structure starts happening in our writing as well. So I think it's, you know, that's why, you know, to me, it's, it's really important to start with the memory and not with the topics. Mm. Yes, that's wonderful. Look, um, one of the biggest, just, um, we're almost out of time, but I, I just wanted to ask you, sure. it's both a distraction, uh, a lovely distraction, and also informative, um, the readings you've chosen um, for the book. I, I found myself getting so lost in them that I, I wanted to just go out and buy the books and continue <laughs> Oh, good, good, good. <laughs> That's how, wonderful. Yeah. How, how did you yeah. choose those? Were they just write like you know you were writing about something and uh, then you thought, oh yeah, this is definitely Helen Garner's, you know, Joseph's consolation. Yes. Oh yes. Yes. Yeah. I'd be I'd be writing about it, and 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 obviously I was I was choosing books from my own bookshelf. I mean, books that I knew already, and I'd be writing about you know this, um, you know the the narrator in. Um, in narrative nonfiction, and so of course I thought of, of Helen Garner because of the way she places herself as a narrator in in the stories that she's telling about other people and that she's researching. So uh, it was very much a kind of um, exchange um, between you know the issue that I was wanting to write about and the books that are, are on my are on my bookshelf, and and really everyone was very generous. Uh, about allowing me to use extracts from the from their pieces, but there were dozens of dozens of others I could have used. In fact, narrowing it down um, was was one of the most painful <laughs> parts of, of of the writing. You know, to have to leave out um, writers that I really wanted to include was was very difficult. But but you know, I could only fit a certain amount in and at a certain length, so I would would end up. Um, you know, d- deciding on the one that that um, you know perhaps that I'd read most recently, so it was more vivid in my own mind. Mm. Yes, look, um, that's that's wonderful. We're we're nearly out of time. Uh, I just want to tell listeners um, where they can go to find out more about your books and your upcoming workshops because you've got quite a few on the cards um, as you promote uh, writing true stories, don't you? 
I, I, I do, and um, I, I do uh, like mostly work, workshops in in Sydney, like the Sabre course, which that, but that won't be starting again till next um, February. That's a four month course, but the Paris course is coming up in October, and um, two places actually become available because um, there was a family illness. So there's you know if anyone wants to dash off with me to Paris to do the memoir writing workshop, they'd be very welcome. <laughs> but otherwise, How you know, good they, would they, that can, be? they can get. <laughs> it's, it's 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 great fun, you know, and 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 people do the work, you know, and they, and they get one of the books came out that came out last, this year, in fact, um, that won the Finch Memoir Prize, Cold Vein, by Anne Tonner. She did the the Paris Memoir Workshop, so it's 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 not all fun and games, you know. We work we work hard at it, but if if people do want to find out more, they they can have a look at my um, website, the lifestories.com.au website to find out more about it. Perfect. Paddy, thank you so much for coming today. Well, thanks. It's, it's been great. I, mean, I, I could talk about um, writing all day. So oh, yes, I'm you. sure. We could, we could go on for another couple of hours. Um, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. Bye. Bye.